Tune in. Tune in. Tune in. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game podcast by Golf Saudi. Hello and welcome along to another episode of the Power of the Game podcast by Golf Saudi. This episode's special guest is DJ Flanders, a senior vice president for Troon International's operations team. Troon, which launched its business in Arizona back in 1990, has gone on to become the world's largest professional golf club management company with over 700 facilities across the world. In over two decades with the company, DJ has successfully managed properties around the world, including the United States, Japan, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Over the course of this episode, we'll hear DJ's thoughts on the emergence of golf in Saudi, the challenges and opportunities for the global golf industry, and how the game is evolving on the international stage. Without further ado then, let's welcome DJ into the conversation. Well, listen, DJ, thank you so much for for joining us on the Power of the Game podcast. It's it's great to have you as a guest on the podcast. And... um, uh, really excited to kind of get into the the kind of the background of Troon and and your own career and and how things have grown within the golf industry over the last couple of decades as well. So we really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, it's my it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, let, let's go back to the beginning, DJ, because I know Troon and and your own career are c- closely entwined. It's fair to say you've I believe with, been with the company for around about two and a half decades, and Troon itself launched in I believe it was 1990 that Troon came into existence. How has the kind of in in your own words, DJ, has has the kind of journey been for you, and um, and how much have you seen the golf industry grow as Troon has become? such a global and, and such a, a high profile and, and successful operator? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really scary when you start talking decades about my career too. So <laughs> thanks for, thanks for that, Robbie. Apologies. <laughs> um, it's true though. Um, you know, I was very fortunate uh, to, to join Troon pretty much right out of college, um, you know, working at a property in, um, in Texas as a tournament coordinator. And because of Troon, uh, I've really been able to, grow my career and, and, and move around the world and, and actually start golf in countries that didn't have golf courses, which has been incredibly rewarding for me because, you know, I come from a golfing family. I, I love the game of golf and to be able to go into emerging markets and start the game of golf and be the first golf course there, um, you know, it's, it's really something special. So, um, you know, Troon started, as you said, in 1990, it was basically just one golf course in Scottsdale, Arizona, and the intent was to you know, make it the best uh, pay-for-play golf course there. Really no major membership model other than some of the homeowners that lived around the golf course. It was more about creating a member experience for a day. Um, And then we've just seen that model just continue to grow over the last 30 years. Um, You know, as we start looking at some of the different age groups that are participating in the game of golf, we've seen a dramatic shift from you know, our parents who really wanted to be members of golf courses uh, to some of the younger generations like the millennials and the Gen Xers who are not as interested in, in being members at golf courses. And, um, you know, they're a little bit more noncommittal. Uh, they want to be able to move around and play different facilities. Um, and that's where that member for a day model really stuck. And I think through that, you just saw a tremendous amount of uh, growth within our portfolio. Now, I do have to say there are some spectacular private golf courses out there, and that model works very well for them. Um, but I just think that uh, that non-member, member-for-a-day model is one that just is easier to facilitate globally and, and hence why we've seen so much growth. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, from my own experience being a member of a private club back in the UK and, uh, you know, having having some degree of, of kind of experience with that, uh, coming out to the Middle East as I did 17 years ago and, and becoming familiar with Troon, because, of course, you guys have been in, in Dubai and, and also other parts of the Middle East for, for so for so long now and, and have been so successful out here. Um, what was amazing to me was that, you know, as you say, member experience for a day, all of the clubs that that Troon manage, you you do you are made to feel genuinely like a member, and um, that's no small feat because you know I, I'm not someone who goes there every week or, or twice a week or, or whatever or, or you know like like a member of a, a private club would do. But when you turn up to the bag drop, everyone knows your name. The service is commensurate with being a member of of a club, and when you've got a, a steady flow of new faces coming through the facility, that's that's actually quite challenging to to pull off. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I'm glad that you felt those experiences when you are there because some of the standards uh, that uh, we try to implement with, you know, names on the carts, names on the lockers, uh, try to greet you by name at the bag drop through either cheating off of uh, a bag tag that's on your bag or uh, maybe, you know, hearing from somebody who's come in right before you that uh, you're with them and this is your name so that we can use it to, to give you that experience. That's very much part of the member for a day experience that we're trying to provide. And, and also we, you know, we make sure we step that up for our members at our clubs as well and make sure that if our members at our golf clubs are traveling to other true golf clubs, that we're getting ahead of them being uh, upon arrival to the staff that are there to make sure that those member experiences for our members at non-member golf clubs are exceptional as well. So it is something that we try to really, really focus on. And DJ, how has the the kind of model been implemented in different countries? Every country has its own culture. Every country has its own, if you like, service culture as well and, and um, attitudes to that. Obviously, I, I would imagine that Troon are looking to kind of develop a standardized international model, uh, but also cater to the specific culture of the country that you're operating in. So how do you kind of blend those two things? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and and I don't have an easy answer. But you know, because as you stated, every culture um, is different, and and every country is different, and and also the golf courses in those countries, there's different desires on on what those facilities are going to be uh, for the ownership. You know, sometimes we're going into emerging markets where there's a golf course within a community where there's going to be a large city that's being built and the golf course is actually just being built for the expats that are going to be coming into that country to help, you know, develop and grow that city for a development group or an ownership or even a government sometimes. Um, So, you know, that model might be a little bit more of a private model because uh, there isn't a lot of um, inbound traffic that's coming into the country uh, for stay and play packages per se, because it's not developed yet, but there is a large, um, community of expats that are there that are helping to grow the country very much like Emirates Golf Club would have been back in the day here in Dubai. So the member model really works in that regard. Um, However, you might be going into markets like uh, in Malaysia, Desert Coast, where it's just off the Singapore coast. It's it's about a 40-minute boat ride from Singapore, and Singapore is currently going through um, a retraction in golf courses where they're actually starting to... um, give back some of the golf courses to the government because so that they can develop them because they don't have enough develop, developable land to keep up with the growth within Singapore. So that's a really great model for the government of Malaysia to create kind of a stay and play destination just off the coast of Singapore for people, Singaporeans in particular, to be able to go over and play golf there. And there'll be a very small membership 
component there. So uh, what it requires from Troon's standpoint is to be extremely flexible. Um, we used to be kind of thought of uh, back in the day as a McDonald's model for management of golf courses. And this is our model, take it or leave it. Um, I think over the year, we've become a lot more flexible, particularly as we've started to open up our global operations. And we really have to listen more, understand our markets, and then work with our ownership groups to create a model that will be best for them and tick the boxes that they're trying to achieve. What's been the biggest change, DJ, that you've witnessed? I, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of focus recently on sustainability and uh, the environmental challenges that the world is going through. And golf has done an amazing job at, at adapting to those challenges. If I think back to maybe even the early part of this millennium with, with the kind of initial boom of golf course construction in places like the Middle East, there wasn't nearly so much focus spent on, on being environmentally sensitive to the, to the land and to the needs of the environment. So I'm sure that would be one. Uh, what, what, um, what changes have you witnessed over the decades that, uh, that have really impacted the golf industry? Yeah, uh, sustainability is definitely the biggest one. I mean, we have to find ways to make golf courses uh, more environmentally friendly, um, you know, re reusing water. Um, the water has to go somewhere, particularly if you have a residential around it. So being able to reuse that water on the golf course and then having a water that, uh, will thrive in that environment um, is always something that we're seeing more and more technology and focus on uh, water or grasses that need less uh, water period uh, so that, you know, you can kind of uh, reserve as much water as possible. Um, we're seeing a lot of changes in, in the design of golf courses. You know, before it was, you know, how hard can you make a golf course? Uh, we're seeing more and more golf courses now starting to pay attention to playability and how can you make a golf course fun for, for the 20 handicapper who's playing on the weekend, but then make it difficult enough to host a tour event, you know, one time a year, uh, whereas before it was just take it or leave it. So uh, you're seeing a lot more of, of advancements and in, in thought processes in, in that regard. Um, and then I say outside of that, it, it goes back to the operating model. As I said earlier, you're just starting to see different types of individual utilizing the golf courses. Um, you, you're seeing a lot more technology being used at golf courses, you know, which we wouldn't have seen that 30 years ago uh, because the younger generation is keen to be able to, you know, maybe watch their sporting event when they're playing on the golf course. So we're seeing golf carts with actual TVs in them. You know, my dad would just absolutely shudder to think that there'd be a a television in a golf cart one day. But, you know, that's something that this younger clientele that are using the golf courses are looking for. We're seeing more and more music on the golf course. Once again, another thing that would maybe make some of the baby boomers that are in the game today <laughs> shudder, but it is something that our younger generations are looking for. So I think the game is becoming a lot more uh, relaxed so that it could be a much more attractive to the younger generation um, and, and making the game a bit more fun for them to be able to play while also having to manage the fine balance to keep that older generation still engaged in understanding why we need to make these changes to make the golf courses viable and successful. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a, a kind of bit of a tightrope that you have to walk, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the established kind of golfing clientele would probably be um, the older generation. But we've seen so many different kind of ways that young people are embracing the game. And you mentioned music. I mean, it is amazing. I, I couldn't have imagined a world where you would have music blaring from a speaker whilst playing golf. But, but now it feels totally normal. And, and I do feel Troon have embraced those, those kind of elements to, to sort of 
making the game more appealing and less stuffy, perhaps. That's always been the kind of cudgel that, that golf has been attacked with, the idea that it, it's an old man's game, that it's stuffy, that it's, that it's sort of um, exclusionary, that it's elitist. How do you kind of break down systematically that, those perceptions or misperceptions, I should say, and, uh, and kind of re-educate people that it, that it is a game that, that can be enjoyed by everyone? Yeah, I mean, that's something that Dana Garmany, who is the founder of Troon, uh, has been focusing on since day one. He, he really had uh, a good understanding of the, of the demographics and, and how we're going to have multiple uh, generations playing golf at the same time. And, and he envisioned some of those challenges that we were going to have. Um, and he really pushed us uh, to be a game for all. That was something that he's always wanted, you know. Uh, game for all being all ethnicities, all ages, um, all levels of play. Um, and then, you know, pretty much whatever you wanted to wear to go out and play golf, he, you know, he was supportive of that. He wanted to grow the game. He didn't want, he wanted to eliminate a lot of those restrictions. Um, so we've really been pushing that for quite some time. And yes, we, we support, you know, the uh, music on the golf course. Um, you know, we've even done an event where everyone wore their favorite sports team jerseys out to the golf course, which, you know, there, it raises a lot of eyebrows, but, you know, what does it really matter what you play? I mean, over the last couple of years, what you wear to play. Um, over the last couple of years, you know, we've seen someone win a tournament with a hoodie yeah. and there was all this uproar about a hoodie, you know, and now you're seeing all the younger players wearing hoodies, you know, so I think we just need to get out of our way of, of what we're wearing on the golf course and, and be more focused as an industry on, on getting people out to the golf course and, and eliminating all of these restrictions that might keep people from playing. You know, my, both of my sons play golf and uh, when they were younger, you know, I would bring them out and they had to tuck their shirt in and all this. And it was just, a, it was a nightmare. And now I play with my 20 year old and he, you know, he tucks his shirt in, um, but he, he, I would let him start playing without tucking his shirt in. I just want him to be comfortable, but now he chooses to tuck his shirt in. So I, I just think, I think the younger generation respects the game, but if you tell them how to do it, it pushes them away. But if you, you let them come out and play the way they want to play and you help them understand the traditions, I think they'll move into the traditions in the long run. But just let them come out and play and be comfortable when they're on the golf course. Hey, some of those old shirts we used to see in the Ryder Cup, DJ, the hoodie is pretty inoffensive compared to some of those shirts from yesteryear, oh, man. I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the global golf industry, DJ, I, I mean, I keep hearing that, and I, I've seen it myself with my own eyes, that the, the, the pandemic kind of um, helped foster a boom in, in golf, a, a reinterest, a regeneration, if you like, of, of, of kind of people getting into the game, using it because it was a safe space to go and uh, enjoy the outdoors and, and sort of maintain all all those protocols during the, the first couple of years of the pandemic, golf had a, a real surge in, in, in interest and, and regeneration. What does the golf industry look like now? We're obviously in very tough economic times globally. Um, how, has, how has the golf industry responded to those challenges and, and Troon, how, what role have they played? Yeah, great question, Robbie. Um, golf is very healthy right now, knock on wood. Um, We've, we've been fortunate and we've been lucky through the pandemic. It's the only way that I can say that. And, and we were lucky through the Tiger Woods boom too, where we had this amazing player make the game cool. Uh, but as an industry, we weren't very good at uh, retention back in the Tiger Woods days. And you actually saw a bit of a dip in the game there for several years. But now the pandemic has reengaged a lot of golfers. 
just because they w- maybe were playing another sport and it was a bit restrictive and, and, and they had COVID restrictions. So it pushed them into the game and, and they started playing the game again, or maybe it was somebody who's never played golf, but uh, weren't able to play the sport that they wanted to play um, and picked up the game during the pandemic. And I think as an industry, we've done a lot better job um, focusing on our retention strategies to make sure that we keep those golfers reengaged. A lot of the operators that are running clubs now were, were around during those Tiger days, and, and I think we all knew how this could all go away if we're not focusing on our retention strategies and making sure that these new golfers are engaged and finding groups to play with and, and enjoying their time at the golf course and um, making sure that they, you know, they don't want to go back to the sport that they were playing before. So, um, so far, um, as we're moving through the pandemic and, and it seems to be getting a bit more in our rear view mirror, we are starting to see uh, some of those levels being held. We're seeing softening, um, you know, now that travel's open in particular in this market, you know, we're seeing people travel and that has impacts on our golf courses. But um, overall, the game seems to be healthy. We're seeing growth in almost every country that we're engaged in. Uh, and that's very positive. And, and I think our operators are very aware that we need to continue to focus on our retention strategies and continue to grow the game uh, so that we can you know, have some nice, healthy operations in the years to come. Let's talk about the Middle East if we can, DJ, because, of course, this is the Golf Saudi podcast. Golf Saudi are trying to do something pretty unprecedented, I think, globally in terms of building a a pyramid, a grassroots program, which leads all the way up to professional tournaments and and everything you could possibly wish for in between. I don't think we've ever seen a a country do that from scratch in the manner that Saudi are trying to do. But you're a man that's had extensive experience out here in the Middle East. You've been based in Abu Dhabi and in Dubai over in Bahrain as well. You know the region very well. Uh, My own interpretation of of Dubai in particular and, and the UAE is that historically, I mean, given the, the, the sort of size of the golf market out here, it's punched so far above its weight in these last 20 years in terms of being an, an extremely high profile and important part of the DP World Tour schedule, the, 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 the kind of bookend, if you like, of the, of the European Tour DP World Tour calendar with the, the Middle East swing and climaxing with the DP World Tour Championship in November. So Dubai has, uh, has had this kind of exalted place in the, in the kind of golfing kind of infrastructure globally for quite some time. But what is your own impression of the Middle East and the opportunities that still exist here in the region for growth? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you know, what you just said about the, what Saudi, Golf Saudi is doing in Saudi is is incredible. Um, you know, there's rumored to be over 30 very uh, high-end, nice golf courses that are going to be opening up there. And, and there's a desire by the government to diversify themselves off of oil and create tourism, very similar to what the Dubai government has done here. Um, and from from being able to see kind of behind the curtain uh, some of those golf courses and, and some of the designers that they're looking to bring in uh, and some of the locations that those golf courses are going to be built, it's it's absolutely going to be um, stunning. And there's going to be some great golf courses on offer in Saudi in the, in the near future. And, you know, I think the thing, you know, we've been involved at uh, Royal Greens in Jeddah uh, since it's opened, uh, which is where they hold the Saudi International. And um, they've had a lot of the ladies events and and we were kind of in the country before Golf Saudi was even created. Um, and to see what Golf Saudi has, has been able to do in the country in such a short amount of time from creating free memberships for women to be able to get engaged at the clubs. You know, we saw that as a huge 
um, boom for us at our club at Royal Greens with getting some women to pick up the sport just because they had a free membership that was being subsidized by Golf Saudi. Um, some of their game entertainment, entertainment initiatives that they're putting in the inner cities to kind of put like top golf type facilities where, you know, they can put the golf club in the hands of Saudis who've maybe never even looked at playing golf before, make it fun for them, introduce the game to them in hopes that they can be future golfers to sustain some of these golf courses that are coming down the road in the future um, has been great. And then obviously their commitment to having, you know, the events within the country, which help, um, you know, the local community, um, understand the game a little bit better, what it's about. Uh, but then also to, you know, focus outside of Saudi and show them the quality of golf operations that they have in country, particularly at Royal Greens. Uh, that's been incredible. And then they have a really good in-school program. Um, they have uh, several individuals that go into the schools with the snag golf equipment, and they're, they're introducing the game to, to golfers at a very, very young age, once again, which is going to make that much more sustainable sport for the Saudis in the future. So I think uh, in regards to what the game's going to be doing in, in the Middle East in the future, um, Saudi is obviously a big part of that. Uh, there are some other great markets too. You know, Oman's got some great golf courses on offer. Uh, Bahrain, as you said, has got some great on offer. Qatar's got some great golf courses on offer. So there's plenty for uh, a golfer to do in this region with uh, within a short flight. That's for sure. The, the Saudi growth, DJ, I mean, we're used to seeing remarkable pace of growth here in the Middle East and things kind of almost unbelievable kind of uh, or scarcely believable, I should say, progress when you consider the time frames involved. I mean, I remember being back in, in Saudi in, in 2018 at the opening of Royal Greens Golf and Country Club over in Jeddah. And um, as you say, you know, Troon were, were, were involved at that stage already. And um, that was that was four short years ago. And now, now you've you look at what's transpired since then. The Aramco team series with the ladies European tour, the Saudi international, which has been won by the likes of the former world number one, Dustin Johnson, Graham McDowell. I mean, it's uh, it's become a, a really big tournament in its own right. And and Troon have obviously been there from the get go um, in terms of preparing for that event and and managing that tournament and, and actually getting the golf course to be championship standard in in a country where such an event would have been unthinkable even five or six years ago. Can you talk to me a little bit about about that kind of process and, and the methods that Troon employed to kind of ensure that, um, that Royal Greens Golf and Country Club made its entrance in as grand a manner as possible? Yeah, it wasn't easy. Um, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it, it was, it was, it was difficult. And, and it was, there was a lot of us leaning on our global partners, you know, whether it be Toro or um, maybe some of our chemical and fertilizer suppliers, because, you know, we're, we're bringing in product into Saudi Arabia that has never maybe been brought into the country before. And we were having to lean on them to help us get the necessary products in country. And, um, you know, some of the ministers that were involved with the project were very helpful to help. You know, they knew what we were trying to achieve. So they were assisting us to get everything in country. Um, and then, you know, just training the staff, um, you know, because there is a bit of a Saudiization component to all of the facilities that we're opening. So, you know, having to train them about the game of golf and, you know, how to service and things like that. Uh, there was a ton of training. Uh, and then obviously on the golf course, there was a, an extensive amount of training that had to happen. 
Um, but as I mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast, you know, we we're kind of comfortable being uncomfortable. We, we go into new countries quite regularly and, and we're, we have all of the training programs and materials and patients to be able to go through that training to hopefully bring them up to full Troon Golf uh, standards one day. And, and I feel like we've been able to achieve that there at uh, Royal Greens. And, and we're excited about some of the future projects that are coming down the line in Saudi as well. Yeah, I mean, how does Troon go about, you know, acquisitions and, and I guess um, taking on the management of, of new ventures? How, what's your own selective process, DJ, for partnering with different facilities that are opening? Yeah, good question. I mean, there, in Saudi, I'll use that as another example. Uh, there's a lot of RFPs that are being sent out for new projects. So we involve ourselves in the RFP Process. One of the big things that they're really trying to achieve there in Saudi is, you know, full transparency and making sure that everything's being done by the book. Um, and so, you know, we're going through a, a very extensive RFP process where we're, you know, filling out tons of forms and, and, and sh- making them familiar with our country, our, our, sorry, our company uh, and, and the countries that we work in and the experience that we'll bring to the table. And we're competing against some of the other, um, you know, great golf operators that are out there as well. Um, But what we feel we bring to the table that maybe some of the other operators don't is, you know, we have a global voice, you know, we're over 700 golf courses in 28 different countries now. So um, for a country like Saudi, and not to mention that we've got a proven product in country, um, but for a country like Saudi, who's trying to, you know, bring in golf tourism, uh, we feel like Troon's a good partner uh, we're fully aware that they're going to partner with uh, other individuals as well, and, and they're going to have a nice mix of operators, which I think is important to have. But we just feel from a true perspective that we, we add a lot of value to some of their key projects, and we're excited to be involved with those. I Another thing I'd like to say, and probably the biggest challenge I have, Robbie, with this whole process is – you know, my role as senior VP within Troon is is overseeing kind of the day-to-day operations. So we have somebody who oversees kind of the construction and development of the golf course, um, you know, building it and, and growing it in. And then they kind of toss it over to myself and, and, and the operations team. And we're responsible for delivering the results. Um, and when we start doing pro formas for owners at the very beginning, um, it's difficult because I think sometimes there's an, uh, maybe an expectation that has been set that once the golf course opens, they're going to have 40,000 golfers flying into, you know, this remote part of Saudi Arabia to play yeah. golf. Um, and it's, it's just not reality. It will take you time to, to be able to get that much engagement at your facility. Um, and it also includes the facilities that are around it. You know, or is there is the airport finished? Uh, is there residential around it? How are the residential sales going? You know, um, you know, some some projects there's these grand visions of you know ten thousand homes around the golf course, but then you only have you know ten percent of those homes actually purchased, and those ten percent of homes are purchased as second homes by individuals who maybe visit on the weekends a couple times a year, and and that makes it very difficult for golf courses to be sustainable. So when we're going through that process, we just try to be as brutally honest as we can. And sometimes that makes us not as attractive to an owner because they don't feel like we believe in our delivery as much. Um, But it's actually not the case. We believe in trying to be 
you know, we're an under promise over deliver type of company. We want to be honest with our owners and we want to exceed their expectations. We don't want to set an expectation and then fall dramatically short. Um, and we just set a high expectation just so we could get a contract. That's not the culture that our company's been built on. So that's where, it, 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 you know, it's almost like the, the them selecting us more than us selecting them from a third-party management right. standpoint. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to get into the details because I know that they're kind of up in the air in terms of future projects for, for Saudi Arabia. Names have obviously been mentioned, locations. From what I have seen, some of these projects look absolutely mind-blowing i mean uh, the ones on the red sea the giga projects as well the the layouts i think jack nicholas is involved in, in one of those as well and um you know uh that's pretty exciting when, when you've got a blank canvas and and you're using the the latest technology to create a, a sort of environmentally sensitive layout that that is as aesthetically stunning as some of the kind of renderings that, that i've been fortunate enough to see that uh, that's got to get the juices flowing hasn't it yeah, there's no doubt that they're doing some amazing projects. And, and the, you know, you're seeing a commitment to quality with some of the, um, you know, developers and some of the names of the hotel operators that they're bringing in. I mean, it's obvious that, you know, they're not just going to build it, but they want it built right. Um, so, yes, I agree with you. There's going to be some some really spectacular destinations. And, you know, from a golfer standpoint, I'm quite juiced because I, I can't wait to go some play some of these designs that they've they've put out there and they seem to be realistic about their delivery timelines and, and making sure that they're being built right and not rushing them too fast. Cause that's another challenge we have as an operator where, you know, of course might be not built quite up to standard and then they open and then we have to go in and fix everything uh, while the golf course is open, which is not ideal, but they seem to be the projects that I'm familiar with. They seem to be doing the right things from the get go, which is going to give them uh, a long-term benefit for sure. DJ, I've got to talk to you a little bit about uh, what, a, what a year Troon is having on a professional golf standpoint with your ambassadors because, you know, I know you've been longtime partners with Matt Fitzpatrick. He's had a decent couple of months, it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, Justin Thomas as well is another one of your ambassadors, one of your partners. And um, he, of course, won that thrilling PGA Championship in the playoff against Will Zalatoris. And Sadly for Will, he was also on the wrong end of that uh, that great duel at uh, Brookline with with Matt Fitzpatrick. I mean, as a company, you've got to be very proud of your guys having two of the three majors so far in 2022. Yeah, I tell you, Team Troon has done all right. I I really would like to know how we selected those players because um, <laughs> somebody definitely had uh, you know had some insight on on those choices. And, and don't forget, to, you know, a couple years ago, Gary Woodland. Uh, joined Team Troon, and then he wins the U.S. Open, and he hasn't done much in the majors. Oh, he played well in the majors, but um, that was his first win. Yeah. So it seems like playing for Team Troon really opens up some doors for you. So, <laughs> yeah, look, that's been that's been great for us. Um, you know, we, that is an initiative that we didn't do in the past. Um, we never really sponsored players or anything, but um, you know, one of our investors thought that that'd be a good way for us to get the brand out. Um, and boy, were they right. I mean, we never anticipated that we'd, you know, have Matt Fitzpatrick carrying a train bag, you know, and win the U.S. Open. But, um, you know, that's the benefit of having those individuals understand what we do and understand our brand and be able to promote our brand and be able to talk to potential owners about what we do and, and, and the quality in which we operate and maintain our golf courses has proven to be extremely valuable for us. And uh, a nice initiative that's been layered on in the last couple of years. 
Yeah, what what I love about Matt is he's so down to earth. I know when he won the DP World Tour Championship a couple of years ago, um, I think he mentioned that he'd be uh, heading back to Sheffield uh, in the Ford Mondeo or some such other car that was pretty, yeah. you know, pretty uh, pretty down to earth for a guy who uh, who's just won one of the biggest tournaments in in the world. And you can see as well that he belongs as a major winner. Uh, but it hasn't, uh, and I don't think, I mean, it's obviously a little early to tell, but it hasn't fundamentally changed his character. He's still that kind of very straight-talking, very down-to-earth, very approachable guy who loves his sport, loves his golf, is very passionate, and has worked so hard uh, away from the golf course as well as on it to, to achieve his dreams. I mean, Matt Fitzpatrick is now hitting the ball distances that, that were scarcely believable a few years ago. He's, he's increased his distance off the tee. I, I know he, had, uh, he was up there with, with Zalatoris at the US Open and, and was, was really bombing it off the tee. And, and Matt's never been known as a particularly long player, but he's added that facet to his game to contend. And we know how good his short game is. And, and as a result, he's just been having this phenomenal year. So you've got to kind of take your hat off to, to that and, um, and a big future for Matt's fit, Matt Fitz Patrick, because he is so grounded, I don't think he's going to get adversely affected by being a major champion. No, I, I'd agree with that. And I mean, if you look at his amateur career, I mean, he had some great amateur wins too, and it never really went to his head. Um, and and he's he is extremely grounded. I've had the opportunity to meet him a couple times, and you know, he'd much rather talk about Sheffield United than he would talk about golf. And, and I love that, you know, and, and I would say that, you know, Justin Thomas, who's also on team Troon as well is very similar to that. You know, he'd rather talk about Alabama football than talk about golf. And, and I think that um, diversity and, and mix and priorities um, is good for them because they're just not all in on golf. They're, they're working when they're on the golf course. And then when they're off the golf course, they're looking at ways to, you know, relax and, and focus on other things that they enjoy. So, um, you know, uh, Gary Woodland is a big basketball player. Um, you know, uh, I've heard that he could play uh, some pretty good college ball back in the day. I never saw him play. So um, it's nice to have guys that are grounded like that and, and, and good guys off the golf course as well as on the golf course. And I do know, know that that was something that when we were looking at players to represent our brand, it was extremely important what these individuals were going to be like off the golf course. You know, we needed people that were approachable, engageable, uh, and grounded where they could have conversations with our associates or potential clients. Uh, so that was always something that was taken into consideration, and it's definitely came to fruition with those individuals. And another man, uh, one of the faces of the, the game of professional golf, Rory McIlroy, is uh, a big investor in Troon. He believes in the company. How did that relationship come about, and how special is it to have Rory believe in Troon? Yeah, no, that was a big surprise that kind of came along at the end of last year. Uh, there was an investment, uh, a substantial investment into Troon by a company called TPG, uh, which is a large investor group in the United States. And, you know, they've got stakes in Uber and, um, you know, they have a very, uh, a very sound portfolio. And they were, they were uh, coming to the table with Troon and they brought uh, Symphony Ventures, which is uh, Roy McElroy's kind of investment company that he started in 2019. Uh, as a partner in that investment. And so Rory has been involved since uh, kind of the beginning of this year, which has been great. And, and I never really knew that Rory, you know, had an investment company, but it's my understanding is in 2019, he kind of created this investment portfolio. Uh, he kind of knew that there'd be a point uh, in his career where maybe he wasn't going to be playing golf and, and he wanted to have 
you know, a business kind of set up for himself. And, you know, he was starting a young family and wanted to have something to be able to sustain uh, their lifestyle after golf. And, and he diversified his portfolio and, and started investing in different businesses. I think he has about 15 different investments now. Uh, Truna is obviously one of them with the TPG relationship. And then also he's got an investment in Puttery. I'm not familiar. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that brand, but it's okay. kind of a, a bar putting putt putt concept in the U.S., which is growing quite quickly. Um, Tiger also has uh, a business like that called Pop Stroke, uh, so it's similar to that. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, I don't have much engagement with Rory. Um, obviously, it deals more with our board, and uh, but it is nice to have him. You know, there's been a lot of conversation: Are we going to be able to get him on Team Troon? <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. But I do think when he's out there on the golf course, he's still representing us. And, you know, he's somebody, obviously, that knows our business very well, uh, which could open up potential doors for us in the future, which is great. Is, is he someone that, that will act as a, as a consultant or is he more of a silent partner at this point? Uh, my understanding is he's a bit of a, more of a silent partner. Uh, he does have a, a board seat. So there is somebody who sits on the board that represents, you know, his portion I think he communicates through that individual, but um, who knows, you know, as, as, as his career, um, you know, maybe he chooses to get more involved in the future. We don't know, but um, yeah, right now it's, um, you know, he's kind of managing through his investment partner. We do need to talk about the elephant in the room, DJ, which is, of course, professional golf <laughs> and where it's at right now. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for this one. <laughs> in, uh, in 2022. I mean, look, as, as a man, uh, I'm speaking personally here, I, 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 you know, I have enjoyed the, the kind of watching the soap opera unfold, if you like. There's been an, an incredible sense of drama to it all. I've never seen golf on the front pages of as many newspapers as I have in 2022 and, and actually dominating the sports columns as well in the way that it has the story of, of, of Liv's kind of rise and, and launch earlier this year and the two events that they've had um, that, that has obviously created a, a, a lot of controversy. It's created a lot of debate. It's created a lot of discussion around the future of professional golf and how the whole thing kind of will ultimately end up working for the benefit of the game. Because I think fundamentally it's the game that, that, that we all need to be kind of cognizant of here and, and perhaps not the individual players or the organizations but but as fans of the game and as lovers of the game we want to see we want to see the game prosper we want to see it grow and uh, I guess the intriguing part of it all is where does live fit into all of that so I'm conscious that um, you know you will have your own personal opinions and you will also have you know the the, the kind of true angle of all of this and I, I don't want to get political here DJ but I can't not ask you how you've kind of uh, you know, sort of appraised it all really in the last few months? Yeah, no, that's a fair question and one to be expected. And, you know, I, I think from a true perspective, the challenge that we have is, you know, we are currently engaged with, uh, you know, we host events uh, for our clients, um, for the PGA Tour, uh, for the DP World Tour, for the Asia uh, Tour, Golf Saudi. Um, one of our clients actually was the host of the first live event at Centurion. Um, so it's very, and then obviously we've got Justin Thomas who has shared his opinion on live. And then, uh, you know, one of our investors in our company, uh, Rory McElroy has done the same. So it's just an absolute political landmine for us to dip our toe into as a company. Uh, so we prefer to stay on the, on the sidelines, you know, in these type of conversations. Um, but I would say taking off my true name tag um, and just talking with you, DJ, the weekend golfer. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I'm with you in regards to, you know, change is good. 
Um, I, I personally think there's something there. Uh, I like the team concept in particular. I think um, I think that is something that could there could be something there, and it can evolve into something pretty cool. Um, I wish that all of the tours could work together uh, to make this happen. Um, it's obviously every, everyone's so divided now. You just wonder if they're going to be able to come to the table um, and, and create something that would work for everyone. Um, but it's, uh, it's an interesting process, as you said, to have golf be uh, discussed so much. And, and, and in my head, I wonder, you know, what, what's this going to do for the game in the future? With so many people talking about golf, is that going to help us grow the game? You know, is the live events because you can watch it on YouTube and it's quicker and uh, to watch. Is that going to have more people engaged in the game? I, I, you know, these are things we'll find out in the future. But, you know, having golf on the top of the sports page uh, every day, I think, is a good thing for the game in general. And, and hopefully we see that in the future. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of share my kind of thoughts. And again, we, we, every, everyone has I guess you could say quote unquote political kind of sensitivities when discussing this. I mean, my, I myself work for an organization which, uh, which supports the DP world tour events that take place over in this part of the world in the UAE. And, and of course the DP world tour have made their position on, on the whole thing very clear as well. So, you know, from my own golf fan perspective, DJ, uh, my, my take on it would be that my, my initial sort of assessment of where the game is at professionally is that while it is compelling at times and, you know, for me, you cannot beat a Ryder Cup or a major championship when it comes to theatre in the sporting sense. But there are, I think, too many, um, dare I say, uh, kind of middle of the road, ho-hum tournaments that take place on, on all the tours. Um, and the whole thing needs to be streamlined and and kind of structured in such a way that it promotes the sporting narrative. Because I think fundamentally, we don't see the best players on the planet be on the same golf course competing against one another often enough to sustain and build the kind of sporting narrative that, that other sports are able to generate through through their own seasons. If you look at Formula One, if you look at the NFL, uh, if you look at Premier League football, for example, you've got a, you've got a clear narrative that, that goes from the start of the season to the end of it golf has a wraparound it rolls in it spills into one season into the next the dp world tour championship ends in november three days later it all kicks off again in south africa as well so i mean look I, i'm not suggesting that golf kind of scrap everything and be, build from the ground up again but i think what lives involvement and its arrival has done is certainly at least spark a little bit of debate about what's best for the game should it follow as Rory said in an interview recently a more kind of ATP tour structure where you've got your majors which are sacrosanct you've got your your big events the sort of ATP thousands if you like and then below that sort of lower ranking events that that kind of players that are on the fringes perhaps compete for in their bid to kind of climb the pyramid so would you agree that that golf needs a more kind of um, stronger narrative arc through a season that 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 is a little bit more clearly defined, if you like. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think you know, being an American who has been living abroad for so many years, you know, I've I've become more aligned with the DP World Tour, you know, and those players and 
and then seeing some of them maybe going over to the U.S. and maybe not coming over to the DP. You know, I've always not liked that, you know. And then, then there's a lot of players that are on the PGA Tour that I wish I could see over here uh, playing in our events internationally a little bit more. And, and so I, I, felt, I always felt like that was a bit fundamentally broken. Um, and then you look at the Asian Tour. There's some incredible talent on the Asian Tour that are really unknowns because they just don't have the exposure to – you know, us like they do in the Asian market. You know, I worked in Japan for several years and I hosted uh, an event at our facility and there was an incredible amount of Asian talent that I didn't know anything about until I was there. So fundamentally, I think there's just got to be a way where we could all work together and create a schedule that would benefit all parties involved. And, and you know, uh, and I think that the lift, there could be some, you know, space in there for them as well, that, that it would all make sense. So, you know, I don't know. I haven't been obviously been in all the rooms and I don't know all the politics. And, you know, I know there's some legal actions now that are popping up and, um, you know, antitrust laws. And that just gets way over my head. I'm just a golf pro at the end of the day. But, you know, from a golfing fan, I just feel like there's got to be a way that we could all work together to make this good for the game of golf. And, and, and at the end of the day, get more people engaged in it, which would be good for the longevity of the game. You know, I, I've become a Premier League fan since I live abroad. And, you know, I see them. I could, I had such a hard time keeping up with, okay, this is a Premier League game or, nope, this is – they're playing in the Euros or, nope, they're in the Champions League. <laughs> you know, but it works. You know, they're playing in multiple different leagues, but it works because all the leagues work together. So it shows that it can happen uh, if, if everyone kind of works together. I guess from I mean Troon's point of view, you mentioned over seven hundred facilities, DJ, and and um, you know from from sort of my my interpretation of it, golf is the the power base is is so skewed towards the U.S. for obvious reasons. I mean, the U.S. I think has uh, correct me if I'm wrong, something like twenty eight million uh, registered golfers, which is which is so much greater than even the next biggest golf market that, of course, you know, the, the kind of market is so dominated by the U.S., both in terms of from a global operational standpoint of golf to also a professional level as well. When you have aspirations to create a truly global game, um, there is that kind of balance that you've got to strike between a market, i.e. America, which, which has by far the most number of golfers, by far the most number of golf clubs, by far the biggest spend in terms of golf. And then, but also to cater to this kind of in this sort of want, this uh, this willingness to grow the game globally and create a more sort of global kind of platform for the game. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I think um, you know, I think the PGA Tour brand could really grow internationally if they if they they focused on it. I just think we've had more of a nationalistic approach, obviously, up until this point. And um, you know, the, I think the combination of the DP World and the PGA Tour, obviously they had their first event last week at the Scottish Open. Um, you know, I, I think that was a good start. Now, of course, they're obviously, you know, uh, joining hands to be able to um, put themselves up against the Live Tour would be my assumption. Um, but I, I think that was a start because you combined those two tours. But now could there be a way where they could all three work together uh, would be the million-dollar question. But I do think the joint between those two tours is going to see more fluidity between PGA Tour players um, playing abroad and vice versa, which I think in, all in all is going to be a good thing for the game. What does the next decade look like for Troon, DJ? If you, if you look into your crystal ball and, and you look at what the company is focused on in terms of growing the game globally, in terms of perhaps taking on new projects, continuing to, to make golf courses more sustainable environmentally, what, what, what is the company focused on? What are you personally focused on in the years ahead? 
Yeah, you know, I think what you've seen of within Trune over the last couple of years is uh, because we are starting to get some, you know, outside investment, the company is starting to grow through acquisitions where, you know, originally we were growing organically. Now you're seeing us buy strategic partners and companies that help us grow our golf portfolio. You're also starting to see Trune diversify off of just golf. Um, you know, we've recently procured a, a, a food and beverage company we've recently um, called Real Food. Uh, we've recently procured a company, uh, Peter Burwash Tennis. Um, we've also procured another tennis company. So you're seeing us diversify and become a more holistic approach to, uh, and that's Cliff Drysdale. I should get that in there. Um, you're seeing us become a more holistic approach to running golf clubs, um, and it deepens our bench on our resources that we have to run um, golf courses, you know, country clubs or whatever it might be. Um, I think you'll see our company continue to push the uh, relaxed narrative, the more diverse narrative. Um, you know, we need to have more nationalities and ethnicities playing our game. Uh, that's a big focus. And genders, um, that's a big focus for us. We see that as our growth moving forward. If we can get more and more of those individuals playing the game of golf and making it more accessible to everyone, uh, that's going to make the game a lot healthier in the future. Um, and then I've heard the number a thousand golf courses is that benchmark that we're trying to achieve. Um, I heard that number about two years ago at a conference that I went to, and I actually laughed when the individual said that, who was a high ranking officer within our company. Um, we were having dinner. Um, and now I look back and we're getting a lot closer to that number. So, um, you know, when I started with the company, we had eight golf courses that we were managing. So wow. to, to even say that we have 700 now um, is just incredible. And and yet the company still continues to focus on uh, growing the company from a skill perspective to make sure that we can manage all of those clients uh, as if we just have one client. Uh, that's a big focus behind the scenes to make sure that we can always provide the services and the quality expected by our clients, uh, even when we're growing. So. Uh, I guess to answer your question in short, uh, it's diversity and growth are the two things that we'll really be focused on in the future. And I've no doubt, DJ, that you're going to get to that 1,000 mark sooner rather than later <laughs> if your current trajectory yeah. is anything to go by. Listen, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired just thinking about it, Robbie. I'm tired just thinking about it. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, DJ. It's been great chatting to you and uh, we really appreciate it. So uh, we wish you obviously all, all the best of luck with your future endeavors with Troon and look forward to uh, to obviously seeing how that very uh, fertile relationship between Troon and, and Gulf Saudi and, and Saudi Arabian Gulf in, in general go, continues to evolve over the next um, few years as well. That's, that's definitely one to keep an eye on. Great, Robbie. Thank you so much. I always enjoy listening and thanks for having me on. Fantastic, DJ. Cheers.